Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical advice anytime and anywhere? Right here on The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Today's podcast will be like having a front row seat to life in the ER. I know I'm not alone. I was one of millions of viewers who loved the NBC hit TV show ER in the 90s. Every Thursday night, uh, even after a long day in my office, I would sit down with my wife, who's also a doctor, and we would be riveted to the uh, TV watching the action on this fictional uh, Chicago ER. And I could feel my own adrenaline levels surging as the doctors and nurses worked frantically to save lives. Another thing, I have a confession. I'm a magazine junkie. I can't help myself, but whenever I'm at an airport, I start splurging on magazines. It almost costs me uh, as much as a first-class ticket. And I love different magazines on business, sports, and of course, science and medicine. Now, it was on one of those binges that I ended up buying a copy of Discover magazine. Discover is a science magazine, very similar to Scientific American. And for those of you that don't know, these magazines tend to appeal to the, like the science geeks and not your average reader. And it was actually funny. Once I was in a store buying um, one of these magazines and the clerk said to me, do you actually like reading these magazines? <laughs> and uh, I, I would admit when I was back in college, when I first started reading them, like Scientific American, I didn't enjoy it. It was like a job. But now it's my fun. Anyway, so I started reading it. Discover Magazine a little bit more regularly because I really enjoyed it. And I particularly like the column Vital Signs. Vi the Vital Signs column are short vignettes about cases that occur in a real-life emergency room in New York City. The writer is today's guest, Dr. Tony Deher. Tony, uh, Dr. Deher is a triple threat. He's a great ER doctor, he's an educator, and a writer. He's also an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College and an assistant attending at New York Presbyterian Lower Manhattan Hospital. So I'm really excited after that long introduction to welcome Dr. Tony Deher to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of yours. So it was really great that we connected. Uh, I usually like to ask people a little bit about their background and their how they ended up in a certain specialty. So I looked up and I saw your bio. It's pretty impressive. You went to Harvard undergrad. Uh, I went to Brown. So you, a little bit of a rivalry there. Um, there you go. And I know then you went to med school at NYU, both super prestigious institutions. So my question to you to start it off is, why did you choose to become an emergency room doctor? I mean, you know, with your credentials, you could have gotten one of those cushy dermatology residencies or ophthalmology. Right. How did you end up in the ER all this time? And the irony is I trained as a family doctor initially, oh, okay. uh, resident, a residency in Seattle at the University of Washington um, mm. on the theory that I believe pretty strongly in universal health care and making sure that access was was available to the to everyone in this country. And then followed my my nose and became more and more interested in ER medicine. I was always the first one running to the codes as an intern, really interested in learning how to intubate and procedures and just dealing with rapid diagnosis, how do you help people on the worst day of their lives and hopefully make a difference? Um, not adrenaline junkie per se, but that rapid fire reasoning I found very attractive. That's interesting. It's, it's going to lead me to my next question. You know, it's so funny too. I originally was very interested in family medicine. I thought that's where I was going to go because I guess as we rotate through our different rotations in medical school, you, you kind of start to wonder, like, where's my career going to take me? And I think what I found, it sounds like you had the same kind of feeling. I also didn't want to be like kind of buttonholed into one very, very specific area. Like I, so family medicine was very appealing to me. I love the fact that you take care of children, young adults, and even the elderly. And in fact, you take care of families and you get to really know them. And uh, so that's why after internal medicine, I ended up specializing in allergy, immunology, infectious disease. And even to this day, I see kids like five years old and I see 70 year olds. So it's, it's really interesting. Um, but what you just said was very fascinating too, because obviously, yeah, your personality, you don't run from the fire, you run into the fire <laughs> as an yeah. ER doctor. Yeah. So I was going to ask you this, you know, that was like really my first 
you know, question about emergency room medicine and, and your views. Like, ER medicine is definitely an adrenaline type of practice. I remember when I did uh, in my residency, I did several months each year at the ER and it was thrilling but exhausting. So I was just curious, what's your state of mind when you're going into your emergency room shift? Meaning, are you apprehensive because you don't know what you're going to see? Is there some anxiety or is it just a, another day at the office? What, what's your, there, your mental state definitely, Yeah, I mean, there's definitely anxiety. I mean, certainly we've all accumulated cases that were difficult, um, may not have had the best outcome. And you're always worried about the curveball you don't see coming. Right. Um, you know, you prepare mentally and you know that you've got who you're going to ask for help. Um, but it's, it's, there's always, you know, you read the bad cases and review QA cases and there's always literature about the case that went sour or the heart attack that was missed or, you know, you name it. And you're, you're, you're very humble. It's funny because when I was in my, a while ago in my maybe mid career in my forties, I had this strange time of hubris that I was getting pretty good at this and thought, right. oh, yeah. wow, I, I, got, I, I got this down and the gods punished me. And I had a couple of bad cases that I made some, you know, un, probably not the best decisions on. And it was a great lesson of just don't ever think that you've got this mastered, that there's always more to learn and there's always another curveball. That's a great point because, you, you know, as a physician and especially in the emergency room, but I've found that throughout my career, but, uh, and it's really interesting you say about not being hubris, uh, but does that part of you as a doctor to be competent, you have to have that confidence. I mean, you, you know, I always make the example, not to disparage lawyers, but, you know, lawyers, when they're dealing with their cases, because I know I have lawyers in my family and they'll say, well, it could be this thing. It could be that thing. You know, they go to like, 10 different theories. And I look at them and I'm like, you know, as a doctor, I don't have that luxury. I have to like pin this thing down and make right. a decision. You know, like when you're on call in the middle of the night, you know, I know, I know when I was up with residents and interns, you got to make a decision. Is it a clot? Is it a, you know, something else? And uh, so you have to have yeah. that confidence yet at the same time. Rea like reality saying, doesn't care what you think. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to have that confidence yet, as you're mentioning too, you have to have that humbleness because if you think you know it all, before you know it, something new or unexpected comes up. Definitely. Um, 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 so, but so you say, though, you go in each day sort of, you know, um, I guess, I don't know, what's the best word? Slightly apprehensive, but, you know, hoping for the best. I mean, what's... I think the day you're not apprehensive is the day you should stop yeah. practicing. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah. Again, I, I love it. It's, it's right. always a challenge. It's always fun. I love my team. I love the yeah. people I work with, you know, from the nurses to the docs to everyone. Mm. And I know that I can count on them. And I think over the years, what, what I really learned was don't think alone. Don't It doesn't matter who's smart that day. And you don't have to prove that you're smart. You just figure out who's got the best idea and go with it and have everybody think out loud. So I, what calms me down is I know that I can rely on other people. That if, that, yeah, I, a if I have a mental lapse, I can say, I don't know what's wrong with this patient. Anyone got any ideas? And I have no, I have no shame about that. I don't care. I don't no, care that's, that's think. really great. Yeah. As you know, too, sometimes, you know, in attendings, it's like that whole top down thing, almost like the military in medicine. But, you know, sometimes the medical student or the intern will throw out something and like, oh, for sure. Right. Yeah. And they, that, I think we're going to get to that. I think that's why teaching hospitals can be very good places to get care. So I want to look at the patient's point of view now, too. I want to ask you about this. You know, because almost everybody I know is petrified of going to an emergency room when they are sick. They know it's going to be chaotic. They know it's probably going to be painful. And just overall, it's a, a frightening experience. Is there any advice you would give to a patient going to the ER, you know, calling 911? And my second part of that question is, do they choose the hospital that's closest to them, let's say it might be a nice community hospital, or do they, they make that extra drive to a university academic hospital? What's, what's your thoughts on? Uh... Boy, it's a great question. Um, you know, everybody says advocate for yourself, but I think what, what you really need to do when you go to an ER is identify who the players are. Like when I introduce myself, again, as you pointed out, I'm in an academic center. I'll go in after the residents go in or other people mm. go in. I'll say, I'm the, I'm the boss. 
Cause that's very really helpful, by the way, because people see so yeah. many people walking around yeah, in a white yeah. coat. Sometimes they're an orderly. You know? Exactly. <laughs> like saying, you know, is, is my medicine is my labs back yet. You know. <laughs> okay. What, you know, what what the, what does attending? You know, I'm the attending. What does right. that mean? Nobody. Yeah, I, know, I never knew what that meant. <laughs> right. And so I try to joke around a little, you know, just to sort of break the ice and yeah. and be casual about it. Right. But also, I think advocating for yourself, and it's certainly in a busy ER. Someone did this to me just two days ago. Um, you know, a busy day, CAT scan, pending, and a woman who'd come in with a lot of abdominal pain. And the system doesn't automatically flag when results are back. You, if you look carefully, you can always see it. And after a while, the husband came over and said, hey, are the results back? And, you know, I had been checking, but I hadn't checked for, I don't know, 20 minutes. And he was right. right. There, It was there. And so advocating for yourself and... Also acknowledging it's a fine balance between being your own advocate and being, let me be blunt, and being annoying and interfering with the flow of an ER. Absolutely. You know, if everybody is badgering you, then you're distracting from other patients. And so it's a, it's a difficult thing to balance. And I give patients a lot of credit when they, because it's a hard thing to do of just realizing, A, if your family member is in more pain than expected, something's not going right, you don't like the way they look, especially I think the most important thing is I don't like the way they look, that I know my family member, something's wrong, please take an extra minute because this is not good. Mm -hmm. And, you know, ERs work in the sense of you test a hypothesis, you get some labs, you get some imaging, you maybe start a treatment and hopefully things are improving. But if they're not improving, if your hypothesis is looking faulty, a family member is the best person to to point that out. So, you know, yeah, I feel better. Right. So I think what you're saying, which I, I totally agree with you, is that it's good to have really an advocate for you. I mean, that's why I think a lot of times if anybody's fortunate enough to have a family member or a close friend go with them, which, again, could be intimidating for the relative or friend, but to have somebody there with you who's not, um, like as you mentioned, I don't know if the right word's annoying, but meaning, you know, inappropriately disrupting, but being there to say, hey, look, my friend, I know her, she's an, you know, I have this even in my office, which I, 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 again, I, I don't mind, I have a small office, but I, again, sometimes patients are very distraught or they get distracted when they're ill, and having that advocate there to say, look, this is not my friend, I know she's up and going, doing things all the time, and now she, I can't get her out of bed, so, yeah. Um, yeah, I'll take back the word annoying. I think what I think no, it's, it's difficult. You know, it's it's hard to characterize, but I think you need to have a sense of what everyone in the ER is going through, trying to mm. see twenty patients at the same time, while at the same time balancing that with what your family member needs. But I think also for a patient, if you're by yourself, say, um, you know, be be assertive in the who are you, mm-hmm. what are you thinking. I think the best thing maybe for a patient would be. Ask the doctor, what are you thinking? Why are you doing these tests? Right. Um, right. What What are the possibilities? Um, because sometimes you get a patient that says, look, I want a CAT scan. And you're going, you don't need a CAT scan. Right. right. Why not? And, and you know, most patients, you, once you explain it, they're perfectly reasonable about it. But I think that for a patient, it also helps the doctor because if you know what I'm thinking or what my impression is, you may be able to add more information or give some other nuance to it. Or, hey, last week I had this thing hurt. Mm-hmm. And you can become a real partner in the, in the care. Right. And, that, and that's also obviously difficult because, again, versus like in my office where I know my patients, you're seeing the person probably for the first and maybe only time. Right. So it, you yeah. gotta, you got to sort of establish that connection very quickly um, that they trust you and um, you know, to get that key information. What, but what do you think also about it? I know this is tricky because I don't want to disparage community hospitals. Some of them are excellent and people get great care. Um, but is there anything that also comes to mind where you would say, gosh, if I had a family member that had abdominal pain or something, I, I would tell them go to NYU, you know, or Cornell versus their local hospital? Is there, I mean, I know it's, a, it's kind of a broad question, but is there, I mean, like if you had chest pain or abdominal pain, you know, something, as we know, because as you know better than I do, like when these, even the rare things, even the aortic aneurysms, right. you know, crazy stuff where you really do need a top tier hospital. Interesting you asked that because I was the director of the ER at Lower Manhattan Hospital for 13 years and mm-hmm. it was a community hospital. Mm. And I had that exact dilemma of, 
am I providing safe care? And you know, we became a stroke center. We, you know, we had all the all the resources to take care of any patient, except EMS in New York City. If you they think you're having a heart attack, we'll take you to a cath lab hospital. We did not have a catheterization oh, lab. Interesting. So there mm-hmm. is a, a stroke. Same with strokes. You know, if there's looks like someone needs an interventional procedure, we don't have that, and so there is some triaging up front. And so I was I was very nervous about that. That we you know is there a disadvantage to coming to my hospital? And yes, if you're having a heart attack and you come to my hospital, I'll have to transfer you to a cath lab, and that you know we do that as fast as possible. Um, so those super those specialized procedural cases definitely again if you could know in advance go to the the large centers. On the other hand, we had the best door to doctor time in the city. You know I was adamant about that that I. Our, our rule was you get your hands on the patient as soon as they hit the door. We never had patients waiting in the waiting room except for crazy no. days. Wow. And, you know, we, we applied the best possible clinical medicine we could. And I think that was a big advantage. I think we mm. outdid the big academic centers in many ways by, by being so fast and so hands-on. Efficient, yeah. Yeah, I, I could see that. You know, I know like that even right. out where I live in Long Island, there are some really excellent community hospitals where I hear stories from patients where they got treated very quickly, appropriately, you know, and for yeah. a lot of things, I guess it could handle it. You know, one of the step backwards, which I think is important, and I learned this in my office too, sometimes the hard way, you know, part of the allergy part of my practice, like, you know, sometimes it's important what uh, emergency services gets as a diagnosis. I mean, you call 911, you know, if you say, for example, I think I'm having you know, a severe allergic reaction, like anaphylaxis, they will send, I guess, the uh, EMS or paramedic teams versus just sending, you know, I know out on Long Island, sometimes the first people to come are the police. So what would you say? ALS versus BLS, yeah. Yeah. So what what do you say to a patient about that? And and also, I mean, you know, sometimes two people are like, oh, I'll drive myself to the ER. And they don't realize they end up waiting longer because the triage person, like, they think if you drove there, you're not that sick. Right. I mean, is there a thing that, again, patients should know? I mean, if, if a family member, like, let's say they fa- they're found, you know, somebody finds somebody slumped on the floor, you know, unconscious, you know, in their home. Do they obviously don't try to put them in their car and drive to the ER, though some people will do that. I mean, is 911 right. obviously a key thing and to know what to say? Great question. Um, I think it goes back to the same idea of, look, this person is not right that there's Mm -hmm. they're in distress um try to define that for 911 you know is it chest pain is it shortness of breath is it can't walk you know stroke symptoms that kind of thing but don't exaggerate but also i think convey your anxiety about it not your anxiety but your concern like i'll ask my, my 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 opening question to many patients in the er is what was your biggest concern today why did you call 911 or why did you come in because it's, it's hard for people to articulate what exactly is wrong. You know, you need the words to define a symptom and there's not a direct correlation always. It does, right. There's no reason your language should be super accurate about the, the funny lancinating pain in your side that goes, or, you know, you can describe it 10 different ways. Right. But, so I, th- I think that, I think trying to convey why are you worried? Mm-hmm. Um, is a good thing for 911 to hear because it's a it's a it's a kind of unfiltered, fresh chief complaint that can mm-hmm. help them guide what to and do. They, and they have like an algorithm or something that they decide yeah. who's going to respond first, etc. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's that's good. It's important. To, I, I I learned in the office because like sometimes if we had an anaphylactic reaction, you know, back in the day when many many decades ago when I used to give allergy yeah, injections, sure. we you know I I would want. You know, obviously, I was concerned if a patient was deteriorating that I wanted, obviously, EMS coming as soon as possible. I didn't want the police showing up. That would happen as first responders. And so, okay, let me ask you this again, still before we get in a few minutes to the writing part of your stuff. I still want to, I'm interested about the ER. Would you say, and I know, again, this is sometimes a little hard to, you know, to articulate, but would you say a lot of ER doctors are relatively equal in training? Because um, I know now they have ER residencies. Obviously, you have a tremendous amount of experience personally working all these e- in the ER. Um, you know, should a patient be concerned if they're seen initially by a, an intern or a resident and say, you know, when's the when's the boss coming? Or yeah. and uh, you know, I think 
I think it's fair to say, again, who are you and, you know, what is, who makes up your team? Um, I think the training, certainly over the course of my career, um, now that I'm on the back end, um, the training for ER doctors has dramatically improved, that there's a standardization, you know, with trauma management, with stroke management, MIs, you know, there's so many lessons learned and it was so raw and undis- it was undiscovered territory when I began right. starting right. out. Right, I mean, because anybody that it was like internal medicine or even a, even a lot of different specialties, they could get thrown in and work in ER, right? I mean, right. it wasn't like it really wasn't really regulated. Mm-hmm. You know, and even now with the proliferation of stroke centers, which is a great thing, um, what we're seeing in terms of pathology and stuff that we just missed before, because you know, not everyone had MRIs and we weren't as alert to things and subtle strokes and subtle syndromes. Syndromes. The training has incorporated that, so I think there's been a learning curve in the profession over the last 20 years that is now at the point where the average ER doc is pretty well trained and pretty good. Mm. Um, you know, obviously there are always outliers, but because you know, the it, one, it used, yeah, I'm sorry, no, it used to ahead. be hard staffing ERs. I don't know if that's changed too. Right. If there are comp- I think there are companies now that actually probably have a a bench full of you know ER trained doctors you know um you know with residencies because back in the day I remember like in community hospitals it was a big deal like you know getting mm-hmm. you know getting enough attendings you know and you know to cover because you know again you're talking about a 24 hour shift it's not like right. a banking hours you know like oh they go right. home at uh, at six o'clock and the, the night's over the night's just beginning in a lot of places <laughs> listen when I was a third year resident in family medicine in Seattle I would staff the ERs the local ERs overnight you know I was right. it. Right. That was, you right. know, I'd pull out the textbook and read the cases and the nurses would be telling me what to do. And, yeah. you know, I didn't, I, I didn't hurt anybody that I know of, but that was the level of expertise that we had back then, which is not the case now. Well, like you, right. I and mean, I remember it just, it changed in the middle of my residency back in 1988, back in the day before that at, uh, at the New York City Hospital Ride Train, St. Luke's Roosevelt, the second year resident was in charge of the ER. There were no attendings. And right. if you had a problem, you called the third year resident who's covering the whole hospital. And if you called yeah. him, it better be really important. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. he was going to be very unhappy. So nice. I was really glad when I finally was doing my again second year in that position, they had just made it like sort of mandatory that there was at least an attending, you right. know, on and which was made just made me feel more comfortable because as you know too it's interesting you do get a lot of confidence i mean after a few weeks a few months of doing this not that you're an expert but you get pretty good yeah. but it's yeah, still you, great to know that you somebody has your back if uh things get a little out of hand oh definitely well also think about you know what we used to be able to do say 25 years ago you know there weren't stroke centers there were no, no mris not, no, there no. were no cath labs um you know treating a heart attack i mean i'm old enough to remember heart attacks dying in the ER because, you know, you couldn't mm. open their artery. There was no cath lab and the thrombolytics, right. even before thrombolytics. And so, you know, there's so much more we can do now that is incorporated into the training. And so it's a much more complex now. You know, in R2 yeah. back then, there wasn't much that they didn't know. You could learn most of what you needed to know pretty quickly. And now mm. there's a lot more to know. Yeah, interesting. When you see a patient in the ER and you said something very interesting in the beginning you said um you know you look at their appearance you know or ask their friend or family member you know but usually you look at their appearance and you like you know I think that is one of the uh undefinable things being a doctor after many years you look at a patient and you almost know they don't look right (laughs) it's hard to articulate but is there anything else that really again as an emergency room doctor that you go in is, is there any immediate physical findings is there any like lab tests that are just like sort of right on the top of your mind when you're going into a room that you're like okay if i see this i know there's a problem i mean obviously i'll I'll throw an example because i know it's a broad question but it's like Mm -hmm. you see a patient they look very weak you know you order what they call a cell count a cbc and patient's anemic does that get you going quickly because you think wow this maybe this patient's bleeding or something like that so my mantra, the one, my one rule of the ER, and this sounds pretentious, but it's what I tell all the residents and the interns mm-hmm. is you're allowed to be wrong, but you're not allowed to be slow. Mm. And so if you see a patient who doesn't look right or may have issues that you think could be life-threatening or certainly dangerous, 
speed is all that matters. And so we can do bedside lab testing. For instance, you can do really iron ironically the the Theranos scandal and all that blood testing craziness. We do that. We were doing that already at the bedside. I mean, really at the bedside. Of, really? Yeah, it's not. A, I remember we used to spin a crit. You remember, like we used to look at the back. Oh, I I thought that. Was, I figured that was gone. They don't do that anymore. <laughs> I, I have done that. Um, okay. But now you know a small sample, a small blood. When you draw the bloods, you can take all you need is a couple of you know one or two cc's of it, and you run it through uh, an analyzer, and you get a lot of lab results within. Wow, I didn't know that. Minutes. Yeah, that's, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, because, you know, time is unfortunately of the essence. You're really right. It's like, you, you know, I like that mantra because, you know, yeah, slow is, gets you in trouble. If you're, if, if you're wrong, then you have time to right. make up, you know, to reverse your mistake. But, you know, yeah. so in my, in, our, in most ERs, certainly in my ER, everybody gets an EKG. If they have any concern of possible chest pain, any shortness of breath, that's done right up front. If they, we don't do the bedside labs on everybody because that's, fairly labor intensive for nursing and you know resources yeah. but anyone who looks not great gets that and so you're immediately entertaining hypotheses of what could be wrong and treating things as you go so it's a broad it's a broad answer to your question like there's no one specific yeah. thing that gets me going but it's it's the fast patient or a slow patient and it's if it's a fast patient i, I just i i swoop down i I, don't, I won't i won't stop until i've stabilized or figured out what snakes are in the grass. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Okay, and then the last part I want to talk about just the emergency room <coughs> experience. So let me you, so let yeah, me go just go back to your question about what a patient sure. can do. And so, you yeah. know, we're in my ER as the community hospital, we got very good. I mean, it took me a while, but it got we got very good at having the radiology techs come quickly. You know, we had everybody very well coordinated. We could get a CAT scan. I made sure we got donations to have a CAT scan there so we could CT That's you. Super important, you know, right? 20, 20 yards away. It was right off the exam rooms. But I think as a patient, if you're seeing that the workup is not going quickly, if you haven't had an x ray in an hour, even though it's been ordered, or that where's the CT happening? You, you can nudge things and say, you know, just, just checking, is it, you know, on track? Because sometimes that can get lost in the shuffle. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a really good point because, again, what patients do appreciate, two, the two things which I think, as I said in the beginning, frighten them about going to an emergency room. Sometimes, um, a lot of times when I've been in New York City emergency rooms or out on Long Island where I live, I mean, sometimes people are in the hallway. I mean, it's just a bad right. period right. of time, which we'll get to. Um and, you know, the, and, and the other thing is that, you know, again, sometimes a cardiac arrest comes and it just takes several doctors, nurses, they you you get pulled, yeah. right? I mean, right. so if you're there with, unfortunately, stomach pain, which might be a gastroenteritis, you're, you're going to have to wait. Um, but, but you're right, if it's going on too long, I mean, you could, you know, hopefully, you know, politely ask, you know, can somebody... Well, and also understand that sometimes, you know, complex systems, now we're all on the computers, sometimes a test can get waylaid, you know, that someone mm. didn't pick up the order and right. just gently suggest, hey, let's just make sure things are being connected. Yeah, good point. Uh, what I want to ask you about too is probably the two of the most probably dramatic things in your career that I am aware of, uh, one a while back and one recently. And you mentioned that uh, you were, I guess, uh, working at the hospital downtown when 9-11 happened and the Twin Towers went down. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, do you remember what that day was like? I mean, what that period of time oh, was oh, then? Oh, I remember. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was my shift. I was the only attending on duty that morning. Um, oh, wow. The hospital is five blocks away from the Trade Center. So the, the silver lining was that in nine, the first bombing in 93 – um, most people have forgotten that, but that was a very strong heads up. And the hospital after that, you know, there are hundreds of casualties. Six people died in that attack, but hundreds of people had to get down the stairwells and had smoke mm -hmm. exposure. And, you know, right. there, there was significant morbidity, um, but the hospital took that very seriously and was pretty good about disaster planning and, and beefing up the systems that we had. Mm -hmm. So it's not like we were ready, but we had done disaster drills. I had actually done one two months before 9-11. And I remember thinking, wow, where do you put all these people if you have a sudden influx of casualties? And two months how, later, there they were. How did they um, get the staff? Did they have to like also put out a call to doctors? It's almost like a, like a fire thing. Like they have to put out a call to get more doctors to come in, you know, to help you or? Yeah, you know, it was a weekday morning. So the hospital had 
all the surgeons there, you know, all Over the staff around, that are right, in right. The, on, the, on the upstairs floors were there and they all came, you know, tearing down to come help, um, mm. which was a blessing. But, you know, managing that, because it was within walking distance, we had hundreds of patients in the first few minutes. I mean, they were, they were mm. flooding in for, very, you know, for obvious reasons. Terrible injuries, terrible burns and trauma. The, the irony of 9-11 is I've been asked many times, what was it like not having patients on 9-11? And because the images they had of hospitals standing empty and stretchers on the sidewalk was so misleading because we were overwhelmed. I mean, we had a thousand, over a thousand patients that day. It must have been, um, oh my God. And a, and a lot of, you know, terribly, terrible trauma. Ter and burns were especially awful because oh the gosh. jet fuel came cascading down. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry to bring that up. I just, I, I just. No, it's okay. Because you know, sometimes you see these things like on TV, like, you know, where fictionally like Grey's Anatomy, my wife, my wife likes watch, used to like watching that show. And you know, they had something like semi-similar to that. I just can't imagine in real life. You know, again, as I said, I, I was in emergency rooms and I was always worried. You know, I used to get yeah. a little nervous on holidays, like July 4th. You know, you just kind of knew, yeah, yeah. especially if you had that night shift. There was going to be action going on, you know, talking, going back to that apprehension again. But something like that almost catches you so off guard, like that to everyone, but you were front line. I mean, you get as front line so as the, it gets. The, the, the positive from 9 11, again, it was obviously <sighs> awful, but small hospital, we all knew each other. There was no, no argument about who was in charge. It was me and the, and the charge nurse. We, we'd worked together for years. Everybody knew who we were. I knew who everybody else was in the hospital. And the teamwork and the way people rose to the occasion was phenomenal. You know, we, my panic was that we were going to miss, because everybody was covered in dust. It was hard to tell how mm. sick people were. My panic was that we were going to miss someone sick and, and, and have a, you know, an avoidable death. And we didn't as far as I know, which yeah, was it's, it's so nice remarkable. that you mentioned too about your team. You know, I actually, my practice, I have five uh, employees and I think like four of them have been with me 20 years or more. They're like my right hand, you know, and I, I can imagine, I think anywhere we work, especially in a very high pressure, um, you know, where you don't want to miss things and you're caring for people to have a team is, is oh. incredibly important. So the thing I'm proudest of as a, as a medical director of an ER was I, I made a rule where whenever there was a critical patient coming in, the nurses would assign the patients. We'd do a round robin type system. It was mandatory to assign a second attending on that case. The second, the first attending, you know, whoever whose patient it was, was not allowed to have to figure out whether they needed help. They got the help. Oh, wow. They got, wow. They got a second attending right there and if they need them great you know fine look i got this no no big deal but it was not optional and you know so because people don't want to be weak you don't want to be you no know, right like, that's like the, you're right that's the image in medicine like don't uh, yeah, ask for help come hold, right come hold my hand and it's like no i don't care no i like the way um, you run things that, that sounds really really uh, really well it's probably it was selfish because i wanted i wanted that i wanted to help <laughs> hey whatever the yeah. reason is yeah, it's good that's right it's look good for good everybody am, look how good i am for you guys yeah um okay a more updated crisis uh, when covid came around did things change a lot obviously in the emergency room where uh where you are and how do you think, I mean, they show this on TV, but how do you think that doctors and nurses were able to cope with this stress of, oh boy. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, I, again, I also trained, I don't know about yourself. I trained during the AIDS epidemic and I was an internal, yeah, me, me too. right? Yeah. I was so, I mean, I'll admit it. I was so frightened. Here I was, I came right out of medical school. I had actually not even taken care of an AIDS patient in medical school where I went to school. We just, there weren't any AIDS patients. And I walk on, um, the floor and I'm in charge of 20 AIDS patients my first day yeah. as an intern. Wow. I, and I was, I was honestly, I was petrified going in some of the rooms, you know I mean? We, we sure. were all back then. I mean, before that people didn't wear gloves most of the time. Oh, never. That, yeah. the, right. So that changed, right. You're doing all these procedures doing, but now, I mean, all of a sudden I'm putting gloves on and some of the older, you know, some of the older residents would look at me like, what are you wearing gloves for? I'm like, I don't want to get stuck or yeah. blood on me or whatever. I mean, this is kind of scary. And now we have COVID where we're all masked and beginning gowned. What was yeah. uh, anything you could share so that I think, you know, that the public, I mean, whenever I see nurses who are in the emergency room, I thank them. And I think a lot of other people do too, as well as the doctors, because I mean, they put their life on the line and uh, I don't think people really realize how dedicated and incredible professionals, you know, all of you are. 
thanks for that. But I can tell you as a med student at Bellevue, when AIDS began in New York City, um, mm -hmm. I share exactly that experience. Um, but I've never been as scared as I was during COVID. Really? AIDS and 9-11 didn't scare me anywhere near as much as COVID did. I mean, again, I'm in the demographic. I'm over 60. I'm a male. I mean, that was, right. we kept getting emails. We were saying, marked. You're right. We had yeah, a big exit any, on back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Any male over 60, you should right. consider critical right off the bat. I'm going, wait a minute, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it was just, we, it was weird being in the vulnerable demographic. That was the Yes, right. A great point. <laughs> um, but I, I would say that, Again, the way people rose to the occasion on that. But the one thing that was so distressing about COVID, I mean, among obviously just the human tragedy of it, of seeing young people coming in, coding, and you know, mm. bodies rolling in nonstop, was the lack of leadership at all levels, um, national, state, city, you know, yes. all the way down to. And I think the hospitals, my buddies who, a couple of buddies who work in community hospitals, when I asked them, wow, how did you deal with COVID? They had a pretty positive feeling because it was almost like us on 9-11. At the small hospitals, the leadership was in the trenches with everybody. Um, my buddy is a great clinician and he was like, no, I was rounding every, he's the assistant director and he and the director would round every morning and they were doing shifts like everybody else and they were leading from the front. Yes. And I think that is what lacked, was lacking in COVID through many layers of the system. That's a great point. It really is. It's, it was like a war, no question about it. It was a war. And like you said, too, you can't send the uh, the infantry out front. The, the generals have to lead to get to rally around. And, you know, it's, you know, it's really interesting because I've been doing the podcast, you know, over the last three years, and it started before COVID. But during COVID, I interviewed some really world-class uh, doctor researchers, you know, like Alessio Fasano mm. at, at Harvard. I mean, when oh, I wow. got in touch with them, you know, he, he's like the celiac, you know, guru and everything. But, you know, when I reached out to get him on the podcast, they said, well, try to reach him. But he's rounding now in the pediatric wards, you know, where all the COVID cases were. I mean, not even in his wow. area of specialty. Wow. I mean, so this is what doctors were doing who really are incredible. So, okay, I'm going to switch to a little more lighter, fun stuff about your sure. writing career. Okay. So my first question is, how did you get started writing a column? Uh, did you start with Discover or were you writing before? Um... I was an English major in college and I always- Oh, that's like me. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, you know, fantasies of being a writer, but uh -huh. it. Um, I worked in Nicaragua for a year after residency. Um, my family is part Nicaraguan. It's a long oh, story, but I had good reason to be there during the wars in the 80s. Oh, wow. um, and when I came back, my goal was to write a book that would change people's perceptions about what was going on there. So I wrote the book. It wasn't very good. But a buddy, a college buddy saw it and said, oh, OK, you can. And he was working for Discover Magazine and said, hey, why don't you throw throw us a couple of vital signs? And it took off from there. Again, it was just the serendipity. Oh, interesting. Um, well, you're, you're a good writer. I, I really enjoy reading the cases. Uh, the funny thing is. Uh, I was giving you a little bit of a setup early on when I said, what do you look for when you go into a room to examine a patient? And I thought you were going to say vital signs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, been... does, it does cross my mind when I think. But, you know, it's actually, yeah. you know, it's so funny. It's sometimes we get so caught up in medicine. I know even myself, you know, when I'm seeing a patient that sometimes you almost like slightly overlook the vital signs. Do you know? It's, and, it's, and that's right. not something you can afford in the ER because if somebody's heart rate, as you know, is going 150, you got to know, is this just a mild arrhythmia? When I say mild, you know, a, you know, like an atrial arrhythmia that's, you know, right. again, it won't kill a person, hopefully, you know, or they'll cause a stroke. Or is it potentially lethal arrhythmia? And of course, if someone's blood pressure is off or their respiratory rate, you know, all these things that. So I'll tell you, know, you what I'm addicted. I'll tell you what I'm addicted to. What's that? Three things. One is vital signs. You are. The second okay. thing. Mm -hmm. the, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm a maniac. Um, the second thing is what the triage nurse got as the, the, the chief complaint, because it's the freshest, cleanest story. And the third thing is what the medics saw. So mm -hmm. I always, whenever the medics bring a patient in, I always snag them and go, tell me what you saw, what was going That's on, right. you That's know, great. what were the circumstances? And they always have, you know, brilliant insights. I mean, they're, they're all great clinicians, but often in a busy ER, you don't get to talk to the medics. And you do, you get the patient with a brief description, and you lose a lot of nuance. So those are those are my three obsessions. 
That's interesting. All right. I'm going to ask you something else, too. I was fortunate. I think it was over a year ago. I had Dr. Lisa Sanders, you know, writes the diagnosis. Yeah, I, I for... heard your interview with her. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She, she's wonderful, you know. And as I said, both of you are really good storytellers. What I, you know, in analyzing a little bit, I realized very, uh, but a little bit different bent in the sense that, um, you know, Lisa tends to write about, you know, obviously complex cases, which sometimes take years to diagnose. And, right. you know, you see all the things that got missed over years. And she's a good storyteller. And she actually goes back and contacts the patient, obviously, with permission from the doctors uh, about the case. And it makes it for a very interesting case. Your cases, from what I could see, which is interesting, obviously, they're taking place in the ER or shortly after. So, and, that, and, you, and I think you mentioned a lot of more personal cases that you know of. So, I, the, my two-part question is, like, how would you compare your uh your writing to hers and also how do you how do you choose a, a case that you want to write about is it something where you feel like there's a lesson to be learned is it just it was just such an interesting story i'm just curious i mean like for example the one most recent one like out of touch uh which i encourage any of our listeners to get i, I think it was uh yeah the july august discover um right. article which i won't give it away but the the actual title ties into the whole story in actual physical touch right. so no i think what intrigues me is how <clears throat> again how often you, how easy it is to be fooled um how we start out with only a vague notion of what could be wrong with patients and then you know as we go down the diagnostic path the different forks you take or the different branch points um and i guess if i could define my own way of thinking it's i always try to figure out what that linchpin is like Michael Lewis wrote a brilliant book. I mean, all his books are brilliant, but it's called the undoing project. And right. yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what I loved about that book was figure out the smallest intervention, the smallest change in the story that would have led to the correct diagnosis, you know, in, in stories of mistakes or human disasters or airplane crashes, you know, you name it, what could have been done differently with the least amount of effort and the easiest change and i try to you know when we analyze mistakes at quality counts at quality reviews and things like that i try to tell the residents figure out where along the way this could have been reversed and that kind of guides my thinking but also it's i think it's it's trying to portray to lay readers what the dilemma of the case is like i just had a patient who had a lot of a very large pulmonary embolus clot to the lungs. Oh, wow. But, but he'd waited so long because he was a very wonderful stoic guy. Yeah. And the CAT scan was read as he had some hemorrhage in the lung. So if I anticoagulate him, am I going to kill him or am I going to, you know, should have, but on the other hand, he had a lot of clot. And his oxygen saturation was kind of low. So you're, the rock in the hard place is pretty clear. And how do you navigate that? And so presenting those, not the drama, if you will, but what's at stake and what are the, you know, what are the pros and the cons of this particular treatment or what is it that misled you into thinking it was X instead of Y? I find fascinating. You know, it's interesting you say that. Uh, you brought about the Undoing Project, which uh, was about Daniel Kahneman, right? And, uh, yeah. um, you know, the Turetsky, you know, who, you know, Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for a lot of his work. And it's interesting what I found so fascinating about it, because you, as you probably know, in medicine, too, we were trained what is what's called heuristic uh, training. Right. For our listeners, it's what does that really mean? It's like oh, the way I interpret it is rules of thumb. I mean, so like when we would see a patient, you know, for example, who would come into the emergency room if they were over a certain age, if they were in their 50s or 60s and they were a smoker and they were this and they had these risk factors. That was like our, you know, our rules of thumb, like, oh, this guy needs to be admitted. We've got to work on the CCU no matter what and make sure, et cetera, et cetera. Yet a woman could come in who's 48 years old, right. not a smoker, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe there was just some other unusual clotting disorder that she had that she didn't even know about. And we might send her out. And I think what Kahneman's saying, like, look at the data. Let's say if she had elevated enzymes that indicated a heart attack, you better, you know, you know, think about that and not and not trust your gut. I mean, I think that's the uh, that's the trickiest thing, because all through training, we were, ten, you know, we were sort of taught to believe trust your gut, but your gut can be wrong. <laughs> so I have I have a strong pushback on that. And I, okay. I think what Kahneman and Tversky was did was brilliant. But 
I don't like heuristics and I don't like cognitive, the whole theory of cognitive malfunction, you know, the anchoring, anchoring heuristic yes. or the biases, ability, you know, yes. biases. I think it's misleading and dangerous because what really will fix your brain is you need to understand the natural history of these diseases. And to your point, which is an excellent one about chest pain, the fact that 48-year-old women can get heart attacks needs to be in your database. It's not intuition. It's not your gut feeling. It's you need to be shown that there are 50 different ways this disease can present. Yeah. And so my, my other obsession is I'm a big Darwin fan. And I think that understanding the diversity of illness, of how different every illness presents in every different individual, and collecting those cases, you need a very large N and a very large database of what the spread of this disease can do so that you're not fooled by the woman who's 48. I, I once sent a 45-year-old, exactly what you're describing, a 45-year-old who came in with right-sided arm pain. Yep, she was diabetic and a smoker. You know, she had risk factors. I worked her up. I did cardiac enzymes. Her EKG was fine. But I kept saying, well, it's right-sided. It's right-sided. You know, it's not left-sided. I sent her home. Right. And she had a heart attack that night. And I looked at the books again and said, what the heck? Yeah. None of the books describe that it could be right-sided. And of course it can be right-sided. You need to understand that the world doesn't work the way your intuition thinks it works. Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually, my next project is to try to push back on all the cognitive heuristic stuff because you just need to collect the cases. You need to yeah. understand how well, to you know, that that's going to be like my final one of my final questions is that we and we spoke about this briefly when we before we did the podcast which we had a nice discussion about it's the whole idea of touching patients and that's what I loved about that this most recent article out of touch and that unfortunately so much of medicine has moved away from the hands-on examination of the patient and um and the, and the other thing I actually I'm diverting a little bit is that you know, I find that's why, you know, I save a lot of your articles, you know, the same way I save Lisa's, Dr. Sanders, because I find a story I remember much better than just listing symptoms in a textbook. Like, you know, when we went to medical school, Harrison's was the, yeah, the yeah, textbook. Yeah, that's exactly and it was like reading an encyclopedia. It was so boring. You could fall asleep. Right. But, you know, once, you know, I read a case like that you write, you know, in, in Vital Signs or Dr. Sanders writes in Diagnosis or... You know, actually, I have I have actually there was a, a series of books that was called, um, you know, case studies, you know, for the house office or whatever. But they always tell right. an interesting story. And, you know, that's what I, helps stick in your mind, because that's what we see. We see we see stories that are real life stories. You know, I so I could not agree more. And that's my passion for Darwin is he told stories. He describes is that right. Species. I didn't know that. I'm not. A... <laughs> he, he describes species and individual organisms in very close detail. But to your point about physical exam. Yes. To me, the physical exam sounds a little pretentious is a better way of getting a better history. The more your hands are on the patient. I mean, you may find important physical findings. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's right. got its own value. But the more you're, you're glomming onto the patient and getting your hands on them and just spending time and kind of seeing what they're thinking, and maybe another question will occur to you as you're mashing on their belly, the closer and more understanding you have with that patient. Um, I'll, I'll go through a, a neurological exam. I know the patient doesn't need, I hope they don't need, but as I'm doing it, I'm thinking, you know, and what about this? And what do you do? And, you know, tell me about your family. And so it's a chance to understand that person much better mm. you know the writer in me also wants to ask you one more question um because i'm uh, again also i'm always fascinated with dr sanders work and yours how do you try to structure the the actual article it's it's you know because it's brief you have like mm. a few pages i mean do you try to get the story in and then you're working the the medicine do you have like a, a sort of a uh, structure that when you're sitting down to do these That's a great question um you know, again, you're setting the scene, you're trying to give the reader enough information so that they understand what the dilemma is, mm -hmm. you know, what's at, what's at stake here. And of course, there's always the, the payoff and there's always the turning point. I try to be really sparse with, with words. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I try not to write one word too many. Um, so the thing flows, but the structure, and I think it's a little formulaic on my part because they're pretty brief is just, oh, here's the dilemma. I don't know what's going on with this patient. Oh, let me see and what it could be but also what, what was unexpected, what either prompted me to look a little closer at something or what the patient gave me that 
solved the problem. The family member who said, oh, by the way, they're taking this medication, you know, how it's the seventh question down the line or the 14th time you go into the room that someone says, oh, hey, by the way, how about this? And again, how not random things are, but how, how open a mind you have to have, how you're, you really are stamp collecting or, or just opening yourself to anything, any input that you can get. I have to ask you too, because I, I have one of the articles right in front of me. And what I find so fascinating too, is that you have a lot of dialogue in there. I mean, like where it's actually, you know, the patients yeah. saying, oh, I, I, you know, I didn't come in because I, I wanted to wait till the morning, you know, with it. these things that like literally you had to be there. Do you take notes or something? Like, how do you remember? You just play it back in your mind. I mean, because I know reporters, when they do something like this, they're obviously taking notes, but you're working on a patient. Like, how do you, you know, as I said, that's what I, that, that's the thing that differentiates a little bit more than Dr. Sanders is that, I mean, I, I've been studying the two of you now, and it's like I'm looking yeah. at the first couple of paragraphs of your column, and it's, it's dialogue. It's like the literal question and answer that you have going on with the, with the patient. And I think that's probably, me, probably where what I find so fascinating is how a patient answers a question or how you phrase it yeah. can send you in so many different directions. Right, right. So I try to, re you know, I remember the dialogue. or I'll, I'll You just remember it. You don't, you don't take notes on it. You just remember. I, sometimes I'll take notes just to remember exactly how yeah. it went down. But I, I remember uh -huh. it, I think, pretty accurately because yeah. it was the diagnostic pathway. Uh -huh. you know, how I, they, they were answering in a way that led me to one thing. But then I realized, wait a minute, but what if I ask this other way mm. and it changes the character of the, of the case completely? Yeah. You know, we hinge so much on a few, is your pain in the right upper quadrant or in the right lower quadrant? That's what mm. five mm. inches away from each other. And that dramatically changes your differential. And it's not that right. big a difference. Right. Yeah. Um, Dr. Tehar, it was so much fun speaking with you. I, I could talk to you for hours, honestly, and I hope, God forbid, if I'm ever sick and I need to go to the emergency room, I'm fairly close to your yeah. ER because I, I think I would get really, really good care. Is there any place we could send our listeners to find out more? I mean, obviously, if they are smart to get Discover Magazine, if they're interested in science and read vital signs, is there anywhere else your work is present, you know, that they can get more information about what thanks, you do? Thanks for asking. Um, it's pretty much vital signs. Yeah. Vital signs. Oh, I hope there's more other yeah. stuff to come. Well, you know what you really should do? I'm giving you another suggestion. You should put them together in, in, a, in a book, a collection of them. I, I, I would, I'd be first in line to buy it. Oh, thanks for suggesting that. All I right, definitely baby. consider it. Yeah. <laughs> no, great so to talk to you, Jim. All right. Thank I hope you. we get to stay in this touch. Is, All right. Take yeah, care. Yeah, this is really fun. 